And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Football Show. The presenting sponsor for today's episode of The Athletic Football Show is Visa, a network working for everyone. Welcome to The Athletic Football Show. I'm Robert Mays. Great show for you guys today. Mitchell Schwartz is going to be joining us a little bit later, like he's doing every single Wednesday. I hope you guys are excited for that. I know that I am. Before we get to that, though, I am thrilled to welcome the co-host of ESPN's Monday Night Football, somebody we love having on the show, Louis Riddick. Louis, how you doing? I'm doing good, man. I'm doing good. Thanks for having me back. We've always had some great combos here. I sincerely appreciate the time. I know you're extremely busy. We're a night after your night in Green Bay doing Packers-Lions. We're going to get into that. I wanted to ask you, though, before we start actually talking about the game, which I really do want to dig into, I'm curious what your guys' week is like on Monday Night Football. Because one of my favorite things, one of the reasons I kind of want to be a fly on the wall for a TV production is the meetings. And the conversations, because you guys get to have some pretty deep football conversations with the coaching staffs and the players that you work with. So just lay it out for me. Like when you're, let's say for this week, like what was the structure of your guys' week to prepare? Who do you talk to? I'm just curious about the nuts and bolts of what it's like to do those games. Yeah, well, you know what? If I just took you through a week, like, all right, let's, let's just say when we get back from a game. So today, today's kind of like a, you know, it's, it's a travel day. If you're on the West Coast, you take a red eye. If you're if you're not, you're getting back, you know, sometime around noon. It's kind of one of those days to just kind of recalibrate mm-hmm. and really start already, Robert, shifting your mind to the very next week because you don't have much time. Okay, you really have to start dialing in on, okay, from big picture what the next week is going to look like, who the teams are going to be. Start maybe reading some articles about what happened to them previously and just get your mind right ready to go. Wednesdays, we kind of have, a from a booth perspective between Steve Levy, Brian Greasy, 
myself and then Phil Dean, the producer, and Jimmy Platt, the director, us five get together and just discuss the previous week's game and just, you know, have whatever, whatever we want to bring up is, that's positive or negative about what happened in that game from a production standpoint, from a play breakdown standpoint, from a play call standpoint, situations that came up. We just kind of go through amongst ourselves before we get with the big group on Thursday to kind of frame that coming week to just make sure we put that week to bed. Thursday, we have another, then we have that big production meeting. Brian and I kind of lay out what uh, we think this game's going to look like. Uh, Steve lays out what their important, port, um, important points that he wants to make during that week. And we just kind of like set the tone for what uh, the weekend is going to look like once we hit the road and travel on Friday. So really that day also, we give – uh, Phil, the list of the coaches, that, which is what you're getting at, and the players that we think are important that you, to talk to. And he sends that into that team's PR department, and then usually they say yay or nay. It, most teams are very, very good with, you know, giving us the players that we want because it's better for them. They know the more we can highlight them, the better it is for them. And we know, you know, the more that we kind of paint their players in a favorable light, you know, it, it's just good for everybody all around. We travel totally. On- we travel on Fridays usually now. Um, we still do have to test once a week for COVID, so we mm-hmm. have to do that on back and we have to do that on Wednesdays. We get to town on on Friday. Um, Fridays usually just a chill, get acclimated, get into your room. Saturday is when it really ramps up. Go to practice that morning of the home team, and then usually have a production call with head coach, both coordinators maybe two prominent, two to three prominent players on defense, two to three, three prominent players on offense. That is a lot of fun. That's a lot <laughs> of fun. Let's say, let me say this. Last year, although we had to do them all on Zoom last year, this year we're getting to be uh, around some of these teams personally, although just this past week in Green Bay we had to do it on Zoom because you know some teams are tightening up their protocols a little bit. Yeah. Um, but last year on Zoom, I would say our meeting with Kyle Shanahan uh, before we did the 49ers-Bills um, game down in Arizona because they had to move from, from Santa Clara, yep. what was happening, was some of the best football conversation I've ever had in my life, quite honestly. From team building, coach-player relationships, X's and O's, the opponent, what he learned from his father, what he feels about specifically that running backs need to have and why he's able to identify them maybe and have luck with them that the other teams can't. It was freaking incredible. Incredible. I mean, there was probably like we have uh, assistants who dictate the entire production call with everybody we talked to. And his was, I would say on a, on a regular piece of notebook paper, it was probably four or five pages worth of transcript. It was incredible. That's incredible. It's amazing. And really, I mean, the better relationship that you have with these guys, maybe from like for me, whether it are people that I played for, or uh, there's a lot of coaches who I played against, which goes to show you how old my ass is getting and how old some other. <laughs> but it, it's it's wild, man, because the league is such a small league. It really is in the grand scheme of things. And you realize that everybody's interconnected somehow. And you have some great conversations. Bill Belichick last year was a great conversation where he's one of those guys where you ask him the right thing 
he will go on and on and he will kind of like open up the notebook for you in a way that just has you sitting there in awe. Sean McVay's a great interview. Um, that, Is that, there an assistant or a coordinator that kind of snuck up on you that you just weren't ready for when you guys had that conversation? Absolutely. absolutely. But you know what? See, speaking of Sean McVay, see, he kind of tipped me off to this, but he had told me in January last year, I believe it was, it was early last year when he uh, had hired Brandon Staley. He yeah. said, when you meet him, you're going to be blown away by this dude. He goes, I know how you like to think about how you think about defense. You kind of think about defense the same way quarterback coaches and coordinators think about offense from a very cerebral perspective. He said, this guy is that because he used to be a quarterback. So he kind of approaches defense the same way. When we talked to him out in L.A., right then, I think I put on Twitter right then, I said, just watch out. This guy's going to be a head coach. He's going to be a head coach. And Sean was like, Dude, don't say that. Don't say that. <laughs> he He's goes, losing too many guys. You know what? And he said right away, he goes, he goes, in all seriousness, you think he could, you think he'll get some, get some traction and you think he'll get some looks. I'm like, if you guys win, hell yeah. I was like, he's just going to interview off the charts. Yeah. And that's the thing. Just like that. Yeah. That, there's some guys that, you know, I mean, I've told yeah. the story on the podcast recently, but Joe Barry, who you probably talked to last week yeah. when I was yeah. talking to Joe, he said that there were three coaches that he knew within the first day or two of meeting them that they were going to be head coaches. And the yeah. three guys were Mike Tomlin, Sean yeah. McVay, and Brandon Staley. Those yeah. were the three yeah, guys that, that, like, as yeah. soon as he was in the room. And it makes sense. When you talk to all three of those guys, it's readily apparent that they just have, I don't know, beyond just the intellect, but the way they communicate, the way they present it, like there's just something to them. And it's interesting because you get sort of a close-up look at a lot of these guys, maybe before their head coaches, when they are in that coordinator spot. And it's just, it's an interesting vantage point. I would love to just sneak into your luggage at some point and just get into some of those rooms when you're having those conversations. Let me tell you too, it's funny you bring up Mike. Mike, Mike is, Mike's awesome. Some coaches are very guarded. And I get it. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a very competitive league. Teams don't want to, they don't know exactly how you're going to frame stuff when you're on TV, especially if they, they don't have a great relationship with you. So they're guarded with what they say. Some guys who are just naturally though, much more open about the game itself because they believe, look, you're not making any block, you know, any blocks, you're not tackling anybody. So no matter what you say, that can really affect the game anyway. So they'll be much more forthcoming. Mike is one of those guys, man. When Tomlin gets on there and he starts talking, he kind of just – you just kind of sit back and go, go. <laughs> you can go through his entire roster and give you some real good nuggets about each guy. And you're right. You you know Mike's got that real booming voice. Yeah. On a Zoom now, he'll stare right into the Zoom. I'm like, you feel like <laughs> in front of you. You know? So he's just cool. And um, I think one of the other ones who's the best, we had to cut Sean Payton off this year when we did their preseason game. <laughs> We're down there in New Orleans from the Jacksonville game. We we were in, we were over there in, in Metairie in their complex. We had to stop him from talking and remind him that he had practice. Because he was going and going and going and going and going. And he was having a good time. He was telling so he he's one of the most engaging people that there is. And he's such a I think as weird as this sounds, man, and this might be hard for people to believe, but I, I think Sean is one of the most underrated head coaches and or play callers ever. The guy's got, he's got it all in his toolkit as far as communication skills, teaching skills, and then real time 
processing of information in order to make the right call for his players on game day. You know, it's it's really it really is incredible. I, I admire the crap out of him as far as you know what he's been able to accomplish and really what he is still accomplishing despite what happened this past weekend. Because everybody gives all the credit to Drew, and I get it. Drew's a great player, and they were together what 15 years down there in New Orleans. Sean Payton has got Sean Payton's a Hall of Famer, no question. I, I totally agree. I mean, on this show, I think we we sing his praises at every single turn, yeah. just because one of my favorite things. I talk about this a lot. One of my favorite things to ask coaches is, "Would you watch this offseason? Like, who did you go back and watch? What were the things that you studied that you thought were interesting?" And yeah. it's almost just a given that offensive coaches in the league go watch everything that the Saints did. Like mm. it's almost understood just league wide. It's like, oh well, I watch the Saints, obviously. Like yeah. the tone that they use when they say that to me is just. So, so telling. And it says so much about just the respect that he's garnered last week. Did you, did you talk to Nate Hackett as part of those meetings? No, we didn't. Uh, For the offensive side of the ball, we, we just, we just talked with um, um, Matt LaFleur because, you know, when, when the head, if the head coach is a primary play caller, then we'll just talk with him. Like the same thing, what we do in, in Vegas with John, instead of talking to Greg Olson, also we'll just talk to John Gruden and, and like in KC, we talked to Andy. We don't talk to, although that's not true. Andy made Eric Vietnamese uh, available, which was cool too, and 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 I think necessary. So I mean, but yeah, uh, I mean Matt's a good, good interview too, and so is Aaron Aaron Rodgers for that matter. You know he's, you know I mean we could, you could do this whole show just on this topic because yeah, I could sit here and tell you story after story. This is one of my favorite parts of Monday Night Football are the production meetings. As a matter oh, that's of fact, why I would love to do it. I would never the, even – I'd be the worst announcer in history, but I would love the production meetings. <laughs> one of the things I had to do last year was actually learn how to cut down on the number of questions I was asking. How do because you do I, that? How do you like whittle the questions in the list that you want to have? It's impossible, honestly. Because <laughs> I mean, I'm, like, I'm like, I have this, 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 this. But if I would go first – then I realized that, you know, sometimes, you know, Brian would be sitting there going like, well, scratch that one off, scratch that one off. Team player, you know what I mean? Because otherwise, I mean, you, you know, you, you generally think about football the same way and you have to kind of like leave enough to go around because he wants to ask, Steve wants to ask, Lisa Salters may have a question or two, Susie Culver's on those calls sometimes. But I would just be so into it. Next thing you know, I mean, we'd be 45 minutes into it and I had no one else had talked. So, and that's because I just love that part of it, man. I love asking guys about players, scheme, motivation, tactics, personal relationships off the field. I mean, because you're always learning, Robert. You know how this is. This game, this game just keeps on giving to you in terms of the information you can acquire. Because there's, it's always moving, evolving, adapting, which is something that you specialize in tracking how that how that works. You've done almost 20 games now. We're, I want to talk about the Packer game, but I, there's no reason to cut this conversation off. You've done like 20 games now. Mm-hmm. What would you say is the conversation that has made you rethink something about the sport, whether it's team building or the way that a building should work? Something that like when you came away from it, just stuck in your brain for longer than you've expected it to. And it really shifted your perspective. Hmm. Um, I, you know what? I, I think it really wasn't. It really wasn't an X and O conversation. I think it was a 
it was the relationship aspect of of how coaches and their willingness to really sit and listen to players on a basic human level can really positively impact the performance of players, especially when the season gets its toughest late in November and December. And that's something that Kyle, again, that conversation that we had with him, that's what stuck with me. I kind of walked out of that meeting going, see, I didn't expect him to necessarily be that way. I didn't know if he was, I didn't know he was really that personally, I, I don't want to say invested because that's that that sounds like you know all coaches or like I'm assuming all coaches are robots and I know they're not, but I just didn't know he was that invested in the personal aspect of his players to that degree, and I can see why now. Um, maybe you know his teams, despite the fact that they haven't gotten to the mountaintop yet, why his teams are going to be right there and why they always are right there, provided that they stay healthy. And he has a great grasp of that. That team was put through a lot a year ago with having to relocate and go down there to Arizona and move away from their families around the holidays and all. And I think it it reinforced to me something that I've always loved about team building and about program building. And that is the relationship aspect, because that's something that Andy always, Andy Reid always emphasized and we used to talk about when he was in Philly. And I'll never ever question how important that aspect of the game is ever if I ever did in the first place which I don't believe I ever did but I know now I am dead set on the fact that the days of you trying to kind of set up tiers within an organization where you know managers manage coaches coach players play and you don't really mit and scout scout and you don't really mix the two because I've been around places where people think that kind of crap and they think it needs to be segmented and differentiated like that. I'll never ever ever buy into that kind of thing. And I will always be someone who in the event that I ever went back to the NFL, I will work overtime to make sure that that part of it is something, even though in 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 this environment where we know the NFL is a brutal business, I will make sure that in the time where, you know, the people are who they are in terms of on the football team and in the front office and in the organization, they all feel like they are a part of a family and not just in words, Robert, but in action and making sure that you, you take uh, really calculated and intentional steps to make sure they feel that way. Cause it does matter and it can translate to a competitive edge in the moments when it's the hardest, which is the last thing Kyle Kyle said. He said, just remember this, man. Just remember this. Remember how hard it is to play football. Yeah. How hard it is to play football in the NFL and how hard it is to play football at the in the NFL at the highest level, which is what we're all paid to do. To win at By the November. Highest, especially when it's like when it's starting to grind you down. That's right. Exactly it. And you need those relationships. You're going to need them at that point in time because it's amazing what a guy will do for you on third and two if he feels like he cares about you, even though he's not sitting out there going, yeah, Kyle loves me, so I'm going to run a little harder on this play. But you know what I'm saying. There's just that – there's yeah. just never – there's just that unbreakable or unbreakable trust that exists between you and a player or, you know, or you and another coach that you just – it's an intangible thing you can't put your finger on and can't really measure, but it's, but it's real. And I believe that a hundred percent. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing. However you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. For their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash maze, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash maze now to grow your business, no matter which stage you're in. Shopify.com slash maze. Well, sticking in that vein, you were in Green Bay last week. They had a pretty good get right game last night. What, were, what was the vibe there when you were talking about how week one unfolded, what their expectations were, and just the end result last night? Is that kind of what you expected after talking to them last week about what their offense should look like moving forward? Yeah, working backwards there, starting with their offense. I never expected their offense to kind of put a string of performances together like the one that happened in week one. They're just too good. And they yeah. have guys who have performed. Look, Devontae Adams is, you know, depending upon who you ask, the, the best or one of the top three wide receivers in the NFL. You know he wasn't. he's not going to be held down. I don't care how many two-high schemes you run against him, how many bracket schemes, how many high-low schemes. He's going to find a way. He found a way last night. I mean, Aaron's Aaron. We know that. We don't need to sit there and run through what his qualifications are. And he told you, look, we've been performing at a very high level here for a long time. Sometimes as humans, we just aren't on top of our game. They knew it as soon as, like, in pregame, they said, and early in that football game, something's off. Yeah. Sometimes you're in situations like that. If you play sports or whatever it is, man, you have a bad day and you can't shake yourself out of it. And when someone asks you, well, just tell me the one thing that it was, you don't know. And they didn't know really what it was. They, they, they really, they tried to analyze it. I mean, Matt LaFleur talked about the fact that, you know, should I, should I have uh, played the starters more in the preseason? Did I not practice them hard enough? Did I practice them too hard? You know, did we not do the right things in the offseason? Was our focus on the wrong things coming into the season? You know, what was it? The best thing they could do, but really what they came down to was this. All right, let's just rewind. Let's just take it one play at a time, one drive at a time, one quarter at a time. And that's what they did because the game started off slow for them. And believe me, up in the booth, we were sitting there going, could this be an upset? But offensively, they were just kind of poking and prodding and trying to figure out what it was that Aaron Glenn was trying to do to them. They figured yeah. it out. They kept running the football. 
Aaron started dropping a safety down, saying, well, we can't let them gash us too much. And it seemed like every time they got themselves in some kind of form or fashion of man coverage or single high, boom, they'd hit Devontae. There he goes down the sideline. And, like, and they were dialed in. You could just see Aaron going, I got you now. Now I figured you out. Then they went back to two high. And he goes, well, we got an answer for that too. We're just going to rob, run Robert Tunyon down, down the seam against Alex Anzalone. That's how you beat cover two or two man or any version of that. They were just locked in. So you knew what they'd be cool that way. The defense, I think, is still a question. I still do think it's a question. We'll see what happens on that side. Obviously, you know, that's a huge change for a team that went to two straight NFC Championship games. They switch yeah. out their defensive coordinator. Joe Barry is there now. It has not looked good. They have a 7.9% pressure rate over their first two weeks, which yeah. is absolutely brutal. When I, mean, I know Zadarius Smith is out, but they still have some – they have resources in the front. With Preston Smith, Rashawn Gary, I mean, they have resources in the front. That yeah. has not looked very good. Nope. I'm just curious on a more general level. When you're watching a team running a new defensive scheme, what are the first couple things you look for to, to identify whether it's clicking or not? Well, really, it's, it's kind of like, uh, well, communication first and foremost. Yeah. Um, and that kind of goes, you know, you, you've heard the old axiom, like defensive plays about alignment, assignment, and technique, right? Alignment, assignment, technique, execution, I guess you could say. Well, alignment and assignment, it kind of it kind of goes – together because obviously if you're in the wrong alignment you're not going to execute the right assignment but the way you know whether or not a team is kind of locked in and on the same page is by body language communication how late they are to getting the uh getting lined up how quickly they adjust to motions and shifts because one of the things on defense the easiest thing to do is for a team to come out and line up in a static formation and not move anywhere it's easy to communicate that out and figure it out what always jams people up on defense whether it be a young player a non or a new scheme, new coaches, is whenever people start moving or they start going fast, do you see people lining up late? Do you see guys looking at, you know, the body language, like, uh, uh, you know, doing that? They were doing that last night early in the game. And I was like, they don't have it figured out yet. They just don't. So the first time that they ran that little smash corner concept that Quintez Sivas caught the touchdown on. In, in Which is all one, communication, right? Exactly. I saw, the, I saw Kevin King. I think it was I think it was King and Stokes that were together on that one. On yeah, because it was like on the Packers sideline from the booth, it was going right to left. I saw them pre-snap looking at each other, and then you saw a little smash come from the outside, and then Cephas ran the little corner out, and they both jumped on the smash. And then as soon as it happened, you could tell by their body language, they looked at each other. And I'm like, see, these are the kind of things like that's so basic, but like what is it that isn't translating from the meeting room to the practice field, to the game in that scheme, in this new scheme that isn't allowing them to do something that basic, like in their sleep, that's something that should be very easy. And until they can get that done, you don't even, I mean, there's, there's no way, no way you can really assess just how good the scheme is if you can't even communicate in the first place and get lined up properly. So they got some things ironed out as the game went on. But as you talked about and alluded to right away here, when they're rushing four and it's just, you know, four trying to beat five, you know, the four down rushers trying to beat the five blockers, their one-on-ones aren't winning. Rashawn Gary's just not winning. He's just not. Preston Smith, there's a reason why he got benched. Because the first year he was up there with Sidarius, he was very productive. Then he wasn't. Rashawn never was really productive in high, in college, despite being the number one ranked high school recruit coming out in the state of New Jersey here. 
And he's out, and up there, if you see Rashawn Gary in person, I don't know if you ever have. I have. I've been in that locker room plenty, yeah. Well, he he's a big man. Like, he's, he's a very like, big man. Like, this is what I want right here. It's perfect. You know, it's kind of, it reminds me of how I felt when I saw the first time I looked at Julius Peppers in person. I was like, there's no freaking way that that guy, like, <laughs> I remember looking at him in the, in the field and I was just like, my God. Rashawn Gary should be killing people. Just coming out there and just running them over. And he's not getting anywhere close. He was going up against a tackle last night in Matt Nelson, who has three career starts at right tackle as a former college D lineman. So there's a, there's a lot of things, man, going on right there. They got to get figured out and ironed out. The offense is going to have to carry them for a little bit, I think. So I want to talk about just new defenses in general. And you said this recently, and I think it's such an interesting point. Just how in demand and how valuable the right defensive teachers are going to be. Like in a league where points are just, it's astronomical, the offensive production that we're seeing. Really great defensive coordinators and really great defensive teachers are going to be so important and so valuable. What do you think is the hallmark of a really good defensive teacher? Because when I was in in the Chargers, when I was talking to those guys this summer, we were talking about some of the just the stealing that would happen, right? Like Joe Barry is from the Rams. There's a reason that he's with Green Bay right now. It's because of what that defense did. No but if you're taking these Xeroxes of all of this, it's like, I'm going to Xerox this defense and try to replicate it. It doesn't always work. Like you yeah. can't teach it the same way necessarily. So mm-hmm. I'm curious, what, what do you think are the markers of a really good defensive teacher when it comes to some of these principles and concepts? I think two things. It's two things. There's, there's two things you better know how to do now in the NFL or else you're, you're, you're really, quite honestly, you're dead, right? You better know how to attack protections, number one. Truly mm-hmm. know how to attack them. Not just, well, I'm just going to send five and send them all any old haphazardly way, but scheme it up so you are getting free runners and or if you're rushing or you're, or you're getting free runners and or you're getting – the guy who you want singled up one-on-one. Okay. Or you're wasting guys. I think a lot of defensive coordinators are doing a really good job of wasting offensive linemen with the ways that they're just showing pre-snap, like what the Panthers are doing right now, several other teams. But I think like, I totally agree. Yeah. So that is what Brandon did a very good job of with Aaron in particular, moving him around to where he could get him one-on-ones, get him one-on-ones. Because you know, one on one, he like as Aaron has supposedly told many offensive linemen in the over the course of games over the past couple of years, you have no shot against me in one on one. Like he's telling other players that. <laughs> he's like, yeah, you're right. You're right. We don't. So that that's number one. Number two, in the back end, you better have guys who understand the passing game as far as concepts that teams are running against single high and two high and how you can minimize the weaknesses that are inherent in those, in those schemes to the point where like what happened last night. Okay. So when you're in, when you're in too high, okay, there's certain holes in it, right? There are holes in the middle of the field down this, you know, in the middle of the field and then in the holes, 18 yards down the field, outside the numbers, where a safety is going to have a tough time getting to if you're playing standard coverage. So 
knowing that, how do you minimize those things and give your players tools to help you be able to play more efficiently when guys like Aaron Rodgers identifies what you're in, he knows what the weaknesses are, you know he's going to go after them, how can you help yourself survive? So I think, one, can you attack protections? Two, can you teach guys the techniques to help them survive the weaknesses that are inherent in the basic coverage schemes that you're running in the NFL? And that's where I think we really see a glaring difference in competency from one coach to the next. Teaching fundamental techniques of how to slow down high-powered passing attacks. All right. You there's so many, there's so many coaches who want to run lots of fancy fire zones, blitz packages, zero blitz schemes, and show how smart they are in terms of the amount of volume that they have in there. But there's a couple of fundamentals that right now, like there's two fundamentals that drive me up a freaking wall. One, the whole <laughs> One, the whole concept of getting up on the line of scrimmage and pressing but not pressing. You make it look like you're Lester Hayes, but when the ball is snapped, you basically say, here, go ahead, just go run, and then I'm just going to play basketball with you because I'm a pretty good athlete too, and I'll just be able to mirror your routes down the field. Bullshit. No, you're not. You're not going to do that to Tyreek Hill. You're not going to do that to Devontae Adams. You're not going to do that to Mike Evans, Keenan Allen. They're going to eat your lunch, and that's why these guys' numbers are skyrocketing. Because I don't think coaches, minus a few, are emphasizing the value of disruption within the five-yard zone and how it can totally screw up a quarterback in the timing mechanism of an offense. I know one guy who absolutely will sit you down if you don't do it, and he's up there in Foxborough. Because he was teaching us that back in, New- in Cleveland back in the 90s. And they still do it. They're still the team that will go out there and say, guess what we're going to do? We're going to single high you to death, and we'll just line up in it if we want, because you know why? Because our guys are going to absolutely try to maul you at the line of scrimmage, and then we're going to attack your protections to the point where I'm going to get one of these guys free or one of these guys one-on-one on your weakest pass rusher, and even though he may not, like Kyle Van Noy or even Josh Uchi or whoever it is, may not be the greatest athlete, he may not be Lawrence Taylor, I'm just I'm out-thinking you and I'm out-fundamentaling you to where we wind up having a top five defense every year. So I think I think that's really what it is, Robert. Can you attack protections and can you teach guys in the back seven how to survive against all these different aerial attacks? Or rather, they're not different. The, the spread aerial attacks where they're spreading the field and really trying to get you on one-on-ones. Can you teach these guys how to survive by, one, playing with great fundamentals at the line of scrimmage? And the second part of that would be playing the ball in the air. How many times do you hear, I talked about this last night on air, how many times do you hear announcers say, well, he's got to turn around and look for the football? Okay, this is a basic fundamental thing. The whole concept of in phase versus out of phase when you're running down the field with the wide receiver. Mm-hmm. Out, of phase, out of phase meaning this, you're trailing him, you're running, he's hauling, hauling ass, you're trying to catch up to him. Say you get close to him, but he's still got a half a yard of separation on you. The receiver catches the ball. He puts his hands up. You see the defensive back go to punch and strip the pocket. Sometimes he gets it, and people people will go, that's a great play. When he misses it, he's got to turn his head around and find the ball. Okay? Well, it can't be both. Okay? <laughs> you, can't, you can't, when he does good, say it's a great play. When he doesn't, say, well, he needed to turn around and look at the ball. But, you know, honestly, I'm wondering if those kind of things are really taught in the NFL. 
and really taught the way Bill was teaching them. Because there's going to be times where you're just going to have to make plays on the ball down the field because you didn't beat the protection because they did find the one-on-one matchup. Now do you have the fundamental skill set in order to get the ball out against these snipers that we have at quarterback that can put the, put the ball in a, you know, one foot by one foot box like Aaron put on Devontae Adams last night down the right sideline. About three plays before he did it, tied in for the touchdown. And you know what? Here's the good thing about that, though. Wu, the rookie from Syracuse, he got hurt on that play. But Devontae had him beat. He ran a kind of little semi out and up double move on him. But he never looked back. He tried to sp- he tried to sprint to the pocket, as they call it. He tried to punch the pocket. He missed the ball by about that much. Well, Devontae had really late hands on that too, right? Exactly. Which makes it so difficult. If you're just exactly. going to sit there and just flash him at the last second, there's no way you can play that ball. Right. I mean, it was what? really good coverage. Exactly. You know what, though? That's why Aaron Glenn is going to be a superstar coordinator. Because he was a great corner himself. He understands the fundamentals of pass defense and how to play it when you eventually, at some point in time, are one-on-one. And one of the first things he teaches up there, or rather he, I shouldn't say, one of the first things he wanted to learn as an up-and-coming coach was how to attack protections. When to send people and how to send them. Not just, let's just send them because in this book I saw it says send five or send six. (laughs) That's why he's going to be great. And I think, I I don't know if every, I don't know if every defensive coordinator in the NFL or even every de- or de- every defensive coordinator in college football, even at the Power Five schools, some of the best Power Five schools, really understand that at the level that's necessary for you to play consistently good defense in this league. There's a reason why the numbers are going up. It's not just because the commissioner and the league are making the rules such that the offense just dominates. A lot of it is goes. A lot of this is the responsibility, I think, of fundamental defensive play, not keeping pace with fundamental offensive play. I think a lot of it has to do with that. All right. The last thing I want to ask you about the game you did last week, the Raiders have had a pretty nice couple weeks and you, know, you have obviously a deep history with John Gruden. You, I mean, he was in, in Oakland the year that you were there. I mean, you guys, obviously there's a connection there. I'm curious just his, what he's doing right now, right? He got there in 1998. I mean, it's, Think about how long ago that was. Think about where he comes from, just that kind of true blue West Coast offense. Mm-hmm. What they're doing offensively right now is some of the most interesting stuff in the entire league. I'm just curious, when you're talking to him, kind of picking his brain about the way he sees offensive football, yeah. what do you think has allowed him to just maintain this mindset and this ability to just keep drawing stuff up that is kind of on the forefront right now? I mean, it's stuff that is consistently putting his guys in positions to succeed. Yeah, I think one, John has always understood matchups and getting, when you're talking about putting players in positions to succeed, he does that with Darren Waller as well as any coach does with a weapon like that in the NFL. You will see Darren, you will see him constantly moving him around, trying to gather intel as to how a team is going to play him in order to put him in the right position and trying to then forecast how in later situations down the road, he's going to get the matchup that he wants. He's one of those guys who's great at collecting data as Mm -hmm. the game goes on. You saw him do it to Baltimore. I didn't get to see much of the Pittsburgh game because we were, you know, we were on the road, 
But against Baltimore, he consistently was like trying to figure out how Coach Martindale was trying to defend him. And as the game goes on, he's very good at making adjustments, both in terms of formation variation and then route combinations off of it. And that's when Darren started going crazy later on in that football game. He did the same thing with Renfro. Later in the game, he did the same thing with Brian Edwards. So I think he's good at seeing the game. And, you know, there's, there's coaches who can clinic the heck out of, out of uh, offense or out of defense and, and talk about all the different answers that they have on a chalkboard or on a whiteboard. But in real time, when it's happening, it's a much different environment. And John is able to kind of decipher that with the help of his coaches up in the box and make adjustments in real time. And I think no matter no matter how much other places try to copy what he's doing, and as we talked about earlier, when people try to copy defenses and kind of just, well, I want to run their system. I want to do what Brandon Staley's doing, or I want to do what Sean McVay's doing. There's something to doing that stuff in real time that really you just don't know if you're going to be able to make those decisions in real time. I think the other thing really that he – he still he strongly believes in the run game. He strongly believes in the play action passing game. And I think that's something that, you know, the statistics bear it out that that is something that is tried and true. And as a former defensive player, I can just tell you this teams should play action more than they're even doing now. Because as a defender, yeah. especially as a game goes on, look, man, defensive players can't help themselves. They can't help themselves but looking at the quarterback. They can't help it. And for teams not to do it, you're foolish not to do it. And John believes in it. Lastly, I'll say this. This is what he's really got. This is the, really the ace that he's really got in his pocket right now. Derek Carr sees the game just like he does. Derek Carr is on the same level cerebrally, I believe, of the great quarterbacks that are in this league now and previously. John will give him four or five different plays he can go to up at the line of scrimmage. So whereas you think, damn, John dialed up the perfect play. No, John gave Derek the menu and said, pick one based off of what you see. And that's why I think, and that's something you will hear me beat that drum all year this year. John's a good coach, no doubt about it. We all know that he's been a whiz for a long time. He was Sean McVay before there was Sean McVay. Derek Carr is the guy right now. And people don't want to believe it. But this guy is given a ton of freedom, a ton. And he right now is hitting all the right notes, man. He really is. And he can do it that quick. He can do it that quick. He's one of those guys who can come up to the line of scrimmage, and as you're sitting there trying to hold your water and disguise and not let him read your mail from a defensive perspective, based on down and distance and situation, he's the guy who's looking at safeties and linebackers going, hey, aren't you supposed to walk down here? Aren't you supposed to be right? <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to disguise it. I know what you're doing. He's getting to that level now, that Neo type. I'm in the Matrix type level now. And, it's, and I think you're going to see this continue all year long, that Vegas is going to be a team to be reckoned with. You think that there's just a different feel with them this year than there has been over the last couple of years? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, they did a nice job on the defensive side for sure of getting some real good players on the first and second level from a scheme familiarity standpoint. Look, Denzel Perryman and KJ Wright are key, key additions to this defense because this defense is simple in terms of the amount of volume it has. But as Gus will tell you, the devil's in the details with this defense, not in the volume, yeah. 
details of what we do and all the different little variations that we have within our quote unquote Seattle three that we run. And when you have players like that who can say, hey, look, when, when KJ says, you know, back in the days of the Legion of Boom, this is how me and Bobby and Cam and Earl and Richard, this is how we played this route. This is how we played this run. This is how we played this play action. This you is know where the problems are. Exactly. They've done a very good job of bringing in veterans who can help the young guys. And honestly, as Gus told us, this defense was designed back in, you know, back in Seattle to help young guys play quicker, get on the mm-hmm. field quicker, reduce the clutter in their minds so that they can just let their athletic ability shine through. And that's why guys like you would hope a guy like John Abram will play better in this defense. They have a rookie free safety in Trayvon Merrick. You hope he's able to acclimate to it very quickly and get going and maybe be that Earl Thomas type. This should really help a guy like Trayvon Mullen. Hopefully Damon Arnett can get himself going to the point where he kind of justifies his draft status. Um, Does that worry you at all that they're seeding opportunities to veterans and in, in marginalizing guys they drafted in the first? That's my only – the thing in the back of my mind is just like that's a dicey way to build a team. And that's it because if you're not developing those guys, your ceiling gets capped out pretty quickly. Yeah, I, I, but I think you know it's it's early. It's yeah. early in. It's not early in their overall program build, but it's early in this defense's build out in particular in Gus's scheme. So there's time. I mean, it's only two weeks in. Let's. It's a long season, an even longer season now. So let's see what those guys do. I think on the defensive line. I think look, you know, we all know that. That Cleveland Furl, as good of a kid as he is, great of a guy as he is, he wasn't worthy of that draft slot. We know that. And I don't think that one's going to – I think that just is what it is. Good thing, though, is, you know, Max Crosby's turned out to be a pretty damn good player, hasn't he? Yeah. He looks excellent, and Ngakwe oh. looks really, really good. Yeah, no, which, yeah, I mean, that's, they, that's the upside be, there. They're going to be for real. They're going to be for real. Awesome. Well, that's all I got for you. I sincerely appreciate the time. I really appreciate you doing this. I know you got a million things going on, so it means a lot that you would take it out. It's always great to chat with you. No problem, man. No problem. Thanks a lot for having me. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. All right, it's time now for our weekly visit with all-pro offensive lineman, former Chiefs tackle, Mitchell Schwartz. Mitch, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing just fine. We just had a nice chat with Lewis Riddick, and I am very excited about digging into this. So you had a few things that you wanted to talk about. We actually just talked a little bit about Derek Carr with Lewis, but you also 
wanted to point out some of the differences that you've seen in Derek Carr through the first couple weeks of the year. Obviously, you had an up-close look at him for several years playing in the AFC West. What have you noticed that's different about the way he's playing quarterback right now than he might have in the past? The biggest difference to me is how he's responding to pressure and to getting hit. You know, I always felt like he was a guy that, I mean, most quarterbacks, if you can get to them, if you can (laughs) apply pressure, hit them, they're not super comfortable. But it did seem like he had a little bit of a tendency to shy away from the contact, you know, get rid of the ball really quick. You know, there's a vivid memory of, in my mind, of pressure coming and he's trying to, you know, throw it out of bounds or dirt it at the running back. And he kind of just throws a wayward interception for a pick six. Like it's that kind of thing that, uh, you know, I always had in the back of my head with him. Because if you take out, you know, kind of the plays under pressure, I mean, he looks like a top five quarterback at pretty much every step of the way. He throws an incredible ball. He's got velocity. He's got touch. Um, he can do all the things physically. It was just, you know, what happens when pressure's coming. Um, the first two games, turns out he throws touchdowns when pressure's coming. Uh, you know, he's looked awesome. He's just delivered these huge passes. I mean, honestly, last week he was backing up that throw against Pittsburgh, the huge bomb to rugs. He chucked it up. I was like, all right, there's another Derek Carr interception. And no, he hit the guy in stride for a touchdown in a huge situation, big play. Like those are the plays, you know, we talk about it with other quarterbacks. What gets you into that top five? You know, he's the third and longs, the big pressure plays. Uh, he's doing that. It looks great. Um, you know, obviously as a, a Chiefs guy, it's, it's not the most exciting news with him and with Herbert and with the Broncos being 2-0. But uh, I've been really impressed of, of what I've seen from him for two weeks. He's 30. Right. I mean, Derek Carr has been in my life for as long as I've done this, essentially. He was drafted in 2014. I mean, that was back when I was at Grantland with Barnwell. I can remember talking about that draft. Is it possible to become a different quarterback, even enough, enough of a different version of yourself at age 30 in the NFL? Or are we just lying to ourselves? Well, that's the question. Uh, You'd like to think that, uh, you know, people change. I think. Aaron Rodgers spent a whole offseason telling us how much he's changed as a person. But, uh, <laughs> you know, guys kind of revert back to, to their natural state under pressure. And that's the tough thing, um, especially when we're literally talking about a guy under pressure. I mean, that's what everyone's kind of saying with Carson Wentz is, yeah, he might look good for a little bit. But as things break down, as the season goes along, is he going to revert back to the bad habits and the inconsistencies from the last couple of years? You know, guys get better. Um, you know, Alex Smith you know, had that 2017 year where he just literally said, F it. That was his whole mantra the whole year. F it, screw it, let's throw it. He started throwing bombs. He was attempting passes he had never attempted before. Um, Carr's a smart guy. You know, they can make that conscious decision to do it. Um, whether that gets borne out for a 17-game season and potentially the playoffs and, and whether that's something that's, uh, you know, fixable and transforms a guy into this upper echelon quarterback for the second half of his career, you know, I'm not sure off the top of my head there's any test cases towards uh, that being uh, the way things go. I mean, typically by 25, 26, the guy's kind of established himself as uh, that top tier quarterback and he remains in that category for the rest of his career. Uh, that's to be seen. You know, the, the league is just different these days. I feel like kind of all the preconceived notions of developmental curves and what offense is supposed to look like, young quarterbacks, old quarterbacks. I mean, Brady's doing stuff at 44 that literally no one's ever done these young quarterbacks are doing stuff that no one's ever done. So there's not this like eight year window for quarterbacks. Like there used to be from like 25 to 33, it's 21 to 44. And uh, you know, we're, we're seeing some cool stuff at at every uh, level. So 
I'd like to think that, yeah, a guy at 30 can, you know, markedly change his game in a, in a area for improvement uh, for the better and really, you know, vault himself into that, that top tier. So let me make the argument as to why Derek Carr could be a different version of himself at 30 than he was at like 27, right? So if you go back to 2018, he finished dead last in the NFL in air yards per attempt. Dead last. We're not talking like below average, bottom three or four, the lowest mark in the entire league. That has changed. He's seventh right now, but he's fourth in air yards per completion in the NFL. The way that they're playing offense and what they're asking him to do is different. You combine that with an offense that gives him a lot of help, right? I made this comparison last year when I wrote about the Raiders because I just think they were a confounding team last season. There were stretches where they looked like a top 10 offense. And then there were stretches where it's like, well, what is this team? Like their defense is terrible. Like can their offense get over the hump? And I made the comparison to the Chiefs. I, I talked about how there are so many similarities, I think by design, with the way that the Raiders are built and the way that you guys were built. Waller is Kelsey. Henry Ruggs is their version of Tyreek Hill, if a diminished version of Tyreek Hill, obviously. I think that John Gruden does a very good job as that kind of figurehead, play-calling head coach in the same way that Andy Reid is. But it was, was it this knockoff version, right? Was Derek Carr, was his ceiling what Alex was for you guys in 2017, like 85% of that? Or was there another gear there? And I think that when you combine the aggressiveness built into the offense, the style that he's playing with, the help that he has, and just his overall command of what's going on, I think you could build a case for why this might stick around for the rest of the year, for why this could go from them being the 8th to 10th most efficient passing game in the league to the 5th most, and if the defense is merely competent, what does that mean for them? I can make that argument and actually feel like I got a leg to stand on. So their offense, I think Gruden has not gotten the credit he deserves for their offense. You know, he I agree. is not just playing this like, you know, 1980s smash mouth football. You know, he's got a great scheme. He, you know, puts Waller in these one by three formations. And, you know, he does all the things that the modern coordinators are doing. And, you know, he's even uh, doing some cutting edge stuff that other coaches, you know, take from. So he definitely knows what he's doing, but it has skewed towards a quote unquote easier offense or a more quarterback friendly offense in terms of running the ball, some play action, quick game. You know, even the play action stuff has been a little bit shorter, you know, as they've gotten more speed the last couple of years, they've been willing to push the ball down the field more. And that's kind of your point that maybe this is that last piece of the offense that they can, you know, run a few more play action shots throughout the game on third and eight, third and 12, you know, they're not just running these little uh, three yard out routes and hoping a receiver makes someone miss, you know, potentially there's this next level of the offense that Gruden can utilize and we saw this with Coach Reed. I mean, there was the year that zero wide receivers scored a touchdown. Obviously, Alex's, uh, the knock on him was, you know, that he wouldn't throw the ball past the line of scrimmage. And once the personnel changed and once the philosophy changed, they all those plays and they threw them. So now maybe with Gruden, he's got the speed, he's got the horses, Quilling, you know, he's able to add this extra 30 yards of offense on the back end uh, that they didn't have before. Yeah, I think that makes total sense. And again, it's only two games. And we'll see if this can keep up for the rest of the year. But I do think the component pieces are there. If I were a Raiders fan, I'd be all in. Like, I would have talked myself into this midway through that Steeler game, I think. Because I understand it. I understand how you get there. All right. Let's stick in the AFC West for now. I want to talk about the Chiefs-Ravens game. Specifically, 
the Chiefs' run defense. Because through two games, it has been a problem. Like, we can just say that. They, right now, have the worst EPA per play allowed on runs in the NFL comfortably. They're allowing a 59.7% success rate on opponent running plays through the first two weeks. They also have played arguably the two best running teams in the NFL in the Browns and the Ravens. So I think that the question is, if we're sorting through this right now, how much of this is real concerns about the pieces that make up the Chiefs run defense and how much of this is, well, playing against the Ravens and the Browns just sucks. <laughs> it's really, really difficult to slow those teams down no matter what your run defense looks like. So when you're watching that game on Sunday night, Let's say on a scale of 1 to 10, how concerned are you about the season-long run defense for the Kansas City Chiefs? I tend to not get concerned about many things on a season-long uh, basis when you have Pat Mahomes, a quarterback, and Andy Reid is That's your why coach. you're here. So, uh, <laughs> I'm just not concerned. I mean, of the things that you're going to make your team about in modern-day football, run defense is probably the least important, I'd say. Um, now, there are there are things and it's the same on offense that you know the o-line guys argue that the the physicality the body blows the mentality you know being a good run defense has that aggression that attacking mentality that physicality it does bleed over into pass defense and all the other stuff um to me it's like they just happen to have the two worst rushing offenses to go against and back to back and totally different stylistic um you know schemes and I said this last week in, in terms of the Browns, the Browns spent all offseason gearing up for Kansas City. It was revenge from the Henny game and the AFC um, playoffs. You know, they know that the AFC runs through Kansas City and uh, that's what they had to do. Of course, they took a pretty good shot, couldn't do it. Chiefs win. Well, the Ravens just admitted after the game that that was like four years worth of pent up aggression and rage over losing all these, you know, Jackson Mahomes matchups. And that was, you know, added baggage to to the game that maybe Kansas City isn't going in there with. Maybe to Kansas City, it just, you know, another Sunday night game against a really good team on the road. And maybe it wasn't, oh, wow, we've got to get four years worth of losses off our shoulders. Um, so you go against, you know, one of the top three offensive lines in the NFL, one of the top three or five schemes in the NFL in Cleveland. And you flip that around. And obviously, you know, we talked about the Ravens O-line uh, last week. Moving Villanueva to his natural position definitely paid off. You know, they had some other guys who played pretty well, but that Ravens scheme is really, really difficult. I thought they were as diverse as I've ever seen them. I mean, they're doing all the same option stuff and guys in moving parts, except it's a little bit more spread out now. You know, before I felt like they were more of a two tight end fullback, you know, kind of old school beer option, like pack the box and just make things happen. Now it seems like they're doing all that similar stuff from, more of these spread formations, getting more speed on the field, stretching things out. And so, you know, from my perspective, obviously they need to do better in terms of the Chiefs defense against the run. I think that was the worst two games to start a season. You could really, you know, ask for from that perspective. Uh, so I'm not too worried about it. You know, I think they got the guys. I mean, Chris Jones, they got Reed from Seattle. They got Derek Naughty, who's, you know, one of the better run defenders that people don't know about. So, no, I'm not worried about it. Um, but, you know, we'll be talking throughout the year and maybe late October uh, that that switch will flip a little bit. I was rewatching the game today and I was just sitting there and be like, poor Ben Neiman, like poor Ben Neiman and Nick Bolton, like guys that just, you know, all respect, all due respect to Ben Neiman. When the playoffs come, we're hoping that it's 
a Nick Bolton with 15 starts under his belt and Willie Gay back in there or guys that just have been in those roles for a little bit longer. I mean, it's just a really, really tough ask for those guys against those two run defenses in the first two weeks of the season. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine your second career start that Lamar Jackson's back there? He like turns his hips (laughs) one way. He's faking it off. You've got this 300-pound fullback tight end defense alignment running in the opposite direction. You've got like four or three speed on the outside. You've got Sammy Watkins doing his stuff and like everyone's going in different directions and you just have no idea where the ball is. If it's a run, if it's a pass, which direction, what to do. That's a, that's a tough ask. And uh, you know, it's one of those welcome to the NFL moments. And, you know, I'm not one for like, get the bad loss out of your system early, but I do think this is very valuable experience. You just, you can't mimic that in practice. You know, you can, Throw whatever fast guy you want at scout QB. You know, he's he's sure as heck not Lamar Jackson. And there's just <laughs> nothing that replicates that. So seeing it early in your career is good. You can learn from it. You know, you're going to go against these teams throughout the year who sprinkle in run option stuff. You know, the Chargers can do it with Herbert. You know, it seems like maybe they're not as willing as they were last year. But um, you're going to go against a bunch of teams that sprinkle it in. Um, you know, very few are going to have the emphasis that, the Ravens do, but then again, in two weeks you go and you, you face Philly and, you know, Philly's going to run a bunch of that stuff too. So it's good experience. It's good to see at the highest level on the biggest stage. And, um, you know, if you're drafting a guy and you're saying he can't handle a bad game, you know, obviously that's not the right draft pick. So I think these guys are going to respond from it and, uh, learn for the future. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Who was the scout team quarterback when you guys would play the Ravens? That's a good question. It was always you always put like a receiver back there, or I was you know, I was, some I was of, curious. I was like, I'm not sure Chad Henney is going to be replicating Lamar Jackson <laughs> in those situations. So Chad has surprising wheels. Let let's give him his yeah. Credit. Okay. <laughs> hey, we saw him on that rollout. He 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 can scoot a little bit. Um, no, I mean obviously it's it's not 100% Chad Henney. I think for the run periods, you get a receiver in there. You get you know a DB who might be playing scout team defense against the first team offense. Um, someone, you know, a lot of these guys have played quarterback at some point, whether it's college, whether it's, you know, high school more likely. So it's not like you're, you know, taking you out there and, and throwing him a quarterback and saying, Hey, go hey. execute. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I know you're a former lineman. You, you haven't, uh, you know, rode the mesh too often in your life. I really have not. I really haven't. I was, my back was turned to all the mesh happening behind me and our triple option offense that we ran in high school. All right. Something else that you want to talk about that I definitely wanted to dig into. And that's the Washington defensive line. We had a couple of questions about it in the mailbag that we did yesterday with Steven Holder. I wanted to save it because I wanted to go back and rewatch the game that they played against the giants last week. I mean, this is a team that was supposed to be a group, a position group that was supposed to be dominant this year, like was supposed to be the best front four in the entire NFL. And that just hasn't happened. Yeah, they have a 26% pressure rate through the first two games. That's fine. I mean, it's not that great. It's not that bad. They've also blitzed at the third highest rate in the entire league, which is a tiny bit misleading because they're using a bunch of five-man fronts, which have been really wonky, which we can get into if you want to. But when you are watching that group right now, 
Where do you think they're falling short of what our expectations were for them coming into the season? To me, they're not winning the one-on-one blocks the way we thought they would. I mean, we thought this was going to be, you know, San Francisco two years ago. Um, You know, what we've seen of, of, you know, Pittsburgh in week one against Buffalo, like just four guys, maybe five guys up front, rushing the passer, wrecking shop and changing the game. And we just haven't seen that so far. I'm not really sure why, you know, they had a lot of hype on them going into the year. I'm not sure if, I don't think they got complacent, but, you know, uh, hearing themselves talked up every single day, how this is going to be, you know, the best defense in the NFL, the best D line in the NFL, but they were supposed to be legitimately, you know, one of the top five overall units in the NFL at any position group because of the skill, the, you know, the speed, the athleticism, the draft pedigree, what they've shown on the field. And that's supposed to be a unit that can literally elevate the entire side of the ball and win games for you and be the reason that, you know, you're a playoff contender and you go deep and we just haven't seen it. It's it, as simple as, you know, beating the guy in front of you, you know, that Thursday night game, they're going up against a, a Giants line that had definitely struggled a lot and struggled precisely to do what Washington's best at, get after the passer. So I was surprised to see it. You know, I thought Jones was in for a very long night. Turns out that was one of his best career games, if not the best, because he, was he awesome. had time. Yeah, he yeah. had time. So I don't know what the disconnect is. I mean, they have good coaching. They have good skill, good players. They've shown it before. Um, but for their sake and, and for the, you know, the expectations that they had for that unit and for that team, I mean, those guys need to become the game wreckers we expected. A, a little bit of chipping here and there. Like, I mean, you go back and watch that. There were some moments where it's like, all right, they're chipping Chase Young a little bit. But it's not as if it was happening every single play. There's still a lot of one-on-ones that they're not winning. And even when there's not a, a chip up on the outside, most of the time the guy getting double team when they're rushing four guys is Jonathan Allen. It's not Chase Young or Montez Sweat, the two first-round defensive ends that they have. And you're just watching it. It's like, I don't know, man. Like There just is not a lot of progress from where they were a year ago. Like I watch Chase Young right now. And you can still see the gears turning like it is not working all in concert. It still feels like he's having trouble stringing stuff together and timing things together. Uh, it really doesn't look like they're much different than they were a year ago. And I think that that's a problem when you deploy them in the way that Washington is, which is essentially saying we expect you guys to win. Like there aren't a lot of games. There aren't a lot of different things that they're doing. It's pretty much rush for. Let's see if our guys can do it. And right now they can't. Yeah. And look. Any good defensive line is going to get schemed up. There's going to be chips. There's going to be help. There's going to be stuff the offensive coordinator does to help his offensive line out. That didn't matter two years ago for San Francisco. You know, yep. that whole season, we went into the Super Bowl and we had help in, in either a chip or a tight formation or something uncomfortable or misdirection. Didn't matter. They still got after the quarterback. You know, that shouldn't matter if you're the group that we expected them. And yet, to your point, you know, about Chase, he had that sack in the preseason and it was a very skilled rush. It was, you know, throwing the hands, chop, ripping through, flipping the hips. And that's what got us excited is that we saw it. We saw it in, you know, quote unquote, live action in the preseason. You know, we saw this development in skill and for whatever reason, it just hasn't translated in the first couple of weeks. I know, you know, the guys that they seem to be, they seem to be, you know, prideful and um, I would expect them to, to get it figured out and, and get to it. But yeah, I mean, every team's going to go into, you know, an offensive week against Washington and they're going to say, all right, what do we need to do to beat them? We need to block up front. Uh, do we trust our offensive line against them every single play? There's really zero lines in the NFL that you trust, you know, to, to pass block 35 times every single play. So you're going to scheme and help. I mean, even the best O-line scheme and help. So 
yeah, they're going to have to overcome that. Um, and like you said, a lot of the times, yeah, there's chips and there's little rubs and things to make defensive ends uncomfortable, but the true double teams come inside. It's usually the center who's uncovered or a guard that's uncovered. And those two guys work together at the beginning. Maybe the guard gets out late to clean up the pile. I mean, you know, we saw Quentin Nelson, the greatest kill shot of all time, two years ago against the Ingram spin. We've seen, I still remember Brandon Scherf, like absolutely destroyed Justin Houston when Washington was in Kansas City. I guess that's four years ago now because, you know, the Chiefs are playing Washington this year. But just stuff like that, you know, that's not there every single time. So the double teams come on the inside. Um, defensive ends can also split double teams because the tackle and the guard get on different levels. And, yeah, you know, we just haven't seen it. I, I fully expect to see it in, in the next few weeks. But again, I'm not an overreactor. It's just been a really big surprise to me. And, you know, I thought they would all kind of feed off each other in a way that we haven't seen. They're also just, again, not a lot of games, not a lot of stunts. Not a, If you're going to have these uber athletes that they have that aren't winning via traditional rushes and just letting those guys pin their ears back and go, do something to help them out. I mean, do something to make the offensive line uneasy. There just hasn't been any of that. Like, if you're an offensive lineman, or do you want a team just to sit there and rush four from where they're lining up every single play? I have to imagine that's exactly what you want. <laughs> I'm going to contradict you there. For me personally, when they run stunts and games and twists, well, if I can those guys, go take yeah. over this. Yeah, well, that's Chase Young. That's Montez Sweat. That's, you know, the, the interior guys. I know Ionidas got hurt, but Allen and the other guys. I mean, I would rather them be on the move, them doing something different and their main intention to be not specifically beating me. You know, I want the three tech to really just try to pick my hip. It's easier for me to take over and I'll go let the center and the guard, you know, get both over the top. And I'd rather them run an, an ET where the end goes inside first. And all I have to do is really flatten him off. And if I do, I've won the rush, but that's not the defensive end running full speed at me having a three way go. He has a predetermined thing that he has to do. And typically guys give it away. You can feel it. So I always loved going against, you know, particularly back in the day, the Steelers, because they ran so many zone pressures where they drop an end, they bring guys from the other side, like you'd go against them and they'd have these awesome dudes. And I'd have like three true one-on-one pass bros the entire game. And it's like, yes, please sign me up for that. Or like New England, you know, they run the the bear defense, three, three down linemen covering the center and the two guards and their defensive ends half the time are like chip and Kelsey chipping a, a running back. And they're not really fully committing to a rush. And so, you know, a few years ago, they were a lot bigger into that. And so you'd go into a game against new England and I'd love it because they might have Trey flowers and they might have, you know, Winovich who's, you know, or Uche or these other guys, but half the time they're chipping someone and they're not giving me their best rush. So for me, the thing I don't want is a true straight rush. Uh, I understand what you're saying, that if that's not working, maybe mix it up. You know, you've got these freak athletes at the end. Um, you know, we've seen these guys come around the corner and just accelerate and, and destroy quarterbacks. The interior guys are disruptive. So those TEs, those other games, you know, they should be able to free up some space for the ends. Um, but yeah, it's kind of that definition of insanity. If you just keep throwing four and five man rushes at an offense and it's not working and you're getting carved up, then yeah, try something else. That's my thing. I mean, that's if I wouldn't want to do that as if it, you have those guys, there's a reason that you've spent the resource that you have on that. There's a reason New England never does because that's how they play along the defensive line. But if you're going to spend four first round picks on your front four, make them make it work somehow. I mean, just do something <laughs> that's going to make it work. You're like flabbergasted I mean, right now. You don't even know what to say. <laughs> it's it's so frustrating because I watched that game and it's just like doing it over and over and over again. And the other thing that they're doing and I'm curious to ask you about this. I haven't seen a lot of this just in the NFL, period. 
they're running like true five-man fronts. Like we see five-man fronts a decent amount of the time, but we're talking like five down linemen with their hands on the ground. And I understand how you get to that point if you're Washington, right? We have five good linemen. How do we get them on the field together? Let's just put them all out there together. Like that's, I get how you understand how you get there. And by doing it, you create one-on-ones. But I have to imagine as an offensive line, it's like, well, if they're going to do this, like we know who's coming. We know who we have to block. There is just isn't a lot of confusion associated with that. So I'm just not entirely sure what the upside or end game is by trotting those guys out there and deploying them that way. Right. And typically when you've got, you know, five down linemen, you know, one or two of them are standing. It's more of the the three, four style. Um, they, they're standing because there's a potential they could drop into coverage. Exactly. You know, the quarterback sees five guys with their hand on the ground. Well, five are coming. There's only six guys left to cover. You know, it's probably going to be man uh, and then one safety deep or maybe a guy, you know, uh, on the second level, not not super deep. And so, yeah, you're basically just saying we're going to play you man to man across the entire board. Five one on ones of five one on ones up front with the O line and D line, five one on ones in the back end and basically a safety and a quarterback who are <laughs> reading off each other. Um, you know, we faced my last year in Cleveland. We faced Oakland. Khalil Mack, obviously, uh, Alden Smith was on the other side. They basically did that. They ran 5D linemen the whole game. Me and Joe Thomas had about 45 one-on-one blocks the entire game. <laughs> Afterwards, we were like, do we really just do, like, we just had 40 one-on-ones against Khalil Mack and Alden Smith the entire game. That sucked. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's not the greatest from, you know, either perspective. Like, you have to have those horses and they have to be getting home. Otherwise, you got to mix it up. Like, you can't just roll out a cover one, very obvious, five guys are rushing, and had not had those guys get home. It was funny to me because there were moments where they had Bostic line up with his hand on the ground because they wanted to show that look. It's like, he's not even like a pass rushing linebacker. Like, I don't understand anything that's happening right now. <laughs> it just feels like at some point in the offseason, the Washington coaching staff was like, oh man, you know what we could do? We could line up all five of them together. And now they got really excited about this idea. And then you see it in practice and it's like, this is very underwhelming. Like, I'm just not sure what we're trying to accomplish here. Yeah, well, they've had a a few extra days. They got the mini buy pretty early in the season. So I'd imagine uh, there'll be a few changes, whether it's lighting a fire under them to make those one-on-ones pay off or uh, a little bit of a schematic change. But yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. And I'd like to see them get back. I mean, even though I love a line, I, I like seeing a defensive line just take over a game. Like it's just, it's really cool to see. I've, you know, think it's a little bit more apparent, especially from the fan perspective to see a D line, just like demolish a quarterback and, and force a bad offensive performance. You know, there are some good secondaries that can take over a game, but it's just like, Oh, the quarterback has a couple extra seconds. There's no one downfield. Maybe he gets sacked. Maybe he throws it away. Like seeing a D-line take over the game, I think is a really fun game to watch. And it's just like cool to see. And so I want those guys to get to, you know, the form that we expect of them. What do you, when you're watching Young, what do you think is the gap that we're seeing right now? What do you think is holding him back from being somebody who just consistently destroys those one-on-ones that teams are going to throw at him? I would imagine it's that he's not, like comfortable enough to turn off his brain and just let his body take over. Yeah. yeah. He's still learning the skill of all those things. And, you know, for people that like play golf, if you're trying to think about your swing and all your swing thoughts as you're swinging, you know, your body's a little more tense. You're not going to have quite as good of a swing. If you can kind of just shut your mind off, you know, be loose, be relaxed, be free, let your body take over. 
you know, that's when the best things happen. That's, I mean, Travis Kelsey at tight end is the definition of like loose and free and just doing whatever he wants out there. And it looks beautiful. You know, Chase is still learning. He's still developing that skill. And I think he's probably thinking through, you know, his moves as he's going like, all right, this is a one-on-one and my third step, I'm going to throw this hand. And then if he throws his outside hand, I'm going to chop and then I'm going to swivel and dip my hips and, you know, bend gets the quarterback, you know, at some point that just becomes second nature. Your body just reacts off it. You know, a couple of weeks ago, when we talked about Joey Bosa and how he can basically do anything and expose you on any little inconsistency. You know, he's not thinking about anything. He's just like attacking you. And the second you overset, his body reacts and boom, he's inside. And I would imagine that Chase isn't quite there yet. He's got all the physical gifts. He's clearly getting more skilled. I mean, we know that we've seen it. I think it's just not subconscious. I think it's conscious. And that aspect of thinking through it is, is, in my interpretation, probably slowing him down just a little bit. My amateur brain, that's exactly what I see. It's just you can just see the gears turning where he's like, all right, now I shoot my hands. Now I swipe. It's just such a mechanical thing. And when you see a really great athlete operating mechanically like that, it's pretty obvious. With Bosa, like, there's a fluidity to it that is truly incredible. Like it's like a living, breathing thing. The way he's able to read, the way that offensive linemen move, just like the the inside outside moves that he does, where it's just like, it's almost it it's instinctual. Like we know that, but when you watch it in real time, how quickly his body adjusts to whatever's happening to him is insane. And I think that that's absolutely right. Like you see the huge gap between that what that looks like and what Chase Young is doing right now. You know, typically when people ask, you know, rookies, especially like, what's the best thing I can do to, you don't want to go what I do on this play. Oh, do I have him? I'm not quite sure. Like that indecision, that lack of confidence in what you're doing, that leads to, you know, those bad plays, lack of success. And it's kind of the same thing. Like it's just too much thinking in any aspect. And so, uh, yeah, too much thinking on the field is not a good thing. I have had that plenty of times in my career. I'm definitely an overthinker and, you know, I, I try too hard to, to do certain things. So this is coming from a lot of experience. Um, but yeah, I think the cool thing is Chase is working at it. He's getting better. Um, the scary part is it's going to click and eventually his body is going to take over and then, you know, <laughs> good luck NFL. That's why I'm so frustrated because I want it. Like I want to see these guys like fully clicking and fully having it all come together because I do think that there's so much potential there. By the way, you know, some people have those dreams where they forgot to do like they forgot that they have a class and they show up on the day of the final and they didn't take the class the entire semester. I have a recurring dream still to this day, still to this day where I show up for football game and I don't know any of the plays. Like I am inserted into the game and I wow. don't know what I'm supposed to do on like any single play. And I have to ask the guy <laughs> next to me. And it's just this crushing fear that I apparently still have. I have not played a football game in 17 years and I still have that dream. <laughs> okay. So I don't have that specific one. I have the one where I'm either late to the game and like I'm driving oh, yeah. to the Scrambling, game. And then, like, not where my pants oh, I are. Yep, I'm the home. Same I have to go yep. home. Oh no, I'm late. I got to call coach. Or I'm like getting ready for the game. Like my gloves aren't there. My pads aren't there. I freak out. I also have the one where randomly I'm like back in college and it's the first day of college or it's finals day. Sometimes when it's finals day, like I just don't know what classes I'm in, where to go. And I don't know that like I've been in class the whole semester. So yeah, for me, it's uh, not knowing anything in school or not getting to the game on time, but it's never getting on the field and forgetting everything. So that's a very specific odd dream of yours. Mine is a combination of getting on the field and not forgetting everything, 
I fire out and the guy doesn't move. Like I just like feel very, very weak. <laughs> like that is also a part of this dream. But there's also a, a, an equipment aspect to it as well. Many, many times I'm like, where is my helmet? Like the game yeah. is starting and I cannot find my helmet. I have not played a football game since 2005. All right. It, it here's, is here's a question. deeply troubling. Here's a question. What size are you in these games? Are you like your current self? Or are you I'm, your big I'm self? Me. I'm, I'm, I am me right now. I am me at like oh, 187 pounds playing playing offensive line. Well, maybe maybe that's what's manifesting. <laughs> that's probably that's probably what it is. I my understanding of dreams like that is that they're completely rooted in like very real imposter syndrome, which I absolutely have. So I'm not at all surprised Same. that I have this dream in like many, many different varieties. All right. <laughs> speaking of imposter syndrome, let's talk about the Steelers offense. So Ooh. really what what are they really? what are they pretending to be? Because I'm not sure just an NFL offense. I, I think that people thought that they were going to be better this year. I think people thought, all right, new offensive coordinator. Younger, more dynamic offensive line, right? Like that's how you start to build the argument. It has not happened. Through two games, they are meh. They're 20th in EPA per play. Najee Harris is averaging 3.2 yards per carry while facing eight guys in the box on 3.85% of his snaps, which is the third lowest rate in the entire NFL. So it's not even like there's a high degree of difficulty for the ways that they're struggling. Roethlisberger is 20 is 29th among 33 quarterbacks in the percentage of his snaps at or behind the line of scrimmage. So it's an easy offense in theory for what they should be doing right now. And they're still struggling. When you watch them last week, does it just feel like things are hard for them again in the same way they looked like they were last year? It sure doesn't look easy. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's just, it doesn't look good. There's nothing that they're doing that, really looks right or that looks smooth or that shows any continuity or confidence. There's no flow to the offense. You know, I know you talked about a new coordinator. They were going to get under center. They were going to play action. They were going to have motion. They were going to do all these things that are really crucial for, you know, modern day football. It just hasn't translated. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to pinpoint exactly why, you know, Ben obviously doesn't look like his old self. He looks a lot like he did last year, which, you know, was a pretty big de- uh, decline for him. That's carried over into this year, even though apparently he, you know, started working out and, and got himself in shape in year 17 or 18. Um, you know, I don't know <laughs> why it's really looking that way in the run game. You know, I thought with the new coordinator, with, you know, these, these young alignment can block, uh, you know, especially in the run game. So it's not like, Oh, just a crappy line. And that's, it's that simple. As you said, it's schematically, you know, and based on the the defenders that they're facing should be a situation that they're running more efficiently. Uh, It's just not there. It's honestly, I feel like right now I'm talking about them the way the offense looks like, I just don't really know what else to say. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't look right. Um, But this is kind of what I thought they'd be. You know, I'm not surprised at all. You know, I said this after last week, too. I thought that game against Buffalo was a bit of a, I wouldn't say mirage, but they basically relied on a dominant front four performance and one special teams touchdown to win a game. It wasn't the offense, that's for sure. And relying on that week in and week out in the NFL is really difficult. And then, of course, TJ Watt gets hurt. They're already without to it. And so now that dominant D-line is just a good D-line. And all of a sudden, the strength of your team isn't there anymore, and you can't rely on a special teams or defensive touchdown every week. And this offense just doesn't look right. And I don't know that there's really good stuff in sight. I mean, they might just have to like 
go spread again and have Roethlisberger chuck it around. But then again, you watch them and you don't say, oh, yeah, they need to put the ball in Ben's hand more. So I'm not sure. I wonder, uh, you know, I'm curious about what you think. But for me, it just doesn't look right and also looks lost and without an obvious way to fix it. Yeah, it just looks disjointed. I mean, it looks disjointed and, again, just difficult in the same ways that it was last year where there just isn't a lot of – there aren't a lot of avenues to create explosive plays. Like, I mean, he had a couple throws down the field last week. I mean, Casey Hayward made a really nice play in the end zone on a ball. I mean, but it just doesn't look like it's a dynamic offense in any way. Like, nothing about it scares me. And I'm curious. So you have had the luxury over the last few years of playing for Andy Reid. So that's not a concern there. But you also played for some Cleveland teams that maybe left a little bit to be desired offensively <laughs> when you are. And, and it's obviously like there's some years like you played for Kyle in 2014 like that. I still maintain that that offense would have been good for the entire season if Alex Mack hadn't gotten hurt, even with Brian Hoyer at quarterback. But there are some other years where I'm sure it did feel that way, where it felt disjointed. It didn't feel like anything worked together when you're on an offense. Can, how does it feel to sense that? Like when you're in the middle of a game, how real is that feeling where you're just like, none of this makes sense. Like all of this is just scattered plays and throwing shit at the wall and seeing what sticks. So you definitely feel it. It definitely just feels off and not right. And like, why can't we make this happen? Why isn't this working? So there's two points there. One is when you have a good offense and the other is when you don't have quite as good an offense. So if it's the Chiefs, if it's Mahomes, and it just doesn't look right, it doesn't feel right, the offense isn't having success, typically what happens is it's one guy on each play is making an error and everyone's taking turns. So there's 11 guys on offense. Let's just say the first five plays, each of the offensive linemen, like the first play, the left tackle screws up. The second play, left guard screws up. The third play, the center. And so after 11 plays, you know, you've had one bad play out of 11. You're looking back and thinking, oh, I've, I've been playing pretty good. I had 10 really good plays, 10 good blocks. Yeah, maybe I gave a little pressure on the one, but it wasn't too bad. And everyone's feeling like individually they're doing a good job. But in, to- in total, there have been 11 plays, 11 screw-ups, and 11 poor offensive plays. And so there's no rhythm. It just doesn't feel right. You're wondering, huh, I'm playing pretty well. What, what is everyone else doing? Why are figuring it out? And so in those situations, guys just start playing better. One mistake out of every 33 plays, and now all of a sudden the offense takes off and you score a bunch of points. That's what the good offense. When it's not quite as good an offense – uh, there's some issues because typically it's a combination of less skill and worse schematics. And so the scheme isn't really setting you up to be that upper tier offense, you know, that the coordinators aren't quite as good. They're not, you know, understanding zone versus man and letting the quarterback make easy reads. You know, you're having a young quarterback back there who's unsure of the defense and um, now he's holding on to the ball. Now the O-line's a little more exposed because he's holding on to it. Different kind of dysfunction that, um, you know, for the most part, it's not just one guy every play here and there, and you just trust that if you pick up the execution, it'll come together. That is a much more hopeless feeling because you're going to try so much stuff if the offense isn't right, if the personnel isn't right. Obviously, those coordinators who are in the bottom tier of the NFL know what to do to make it right either. So they're going to yeah. start uh, throwing stuff at a wall. They're going to start stealing plays from other teams that they don't really understand just because it looked good the week before. And so that's a, a much more hopeless feeling. But the good offense that looks out of rhythm, that looks out of sync, for the most part, it's just one guy screwing up each play and they're all taking turns. I mean, it, it seems like it's not that simple, but it is. We talk a lot about just making it easier on your guys, right? How do you, how do offensive coaches make it easier on their guys? 
How did Andy Reid make it easier on you? Like what tangible ways was your job easier because Andy Reid was your offensive play caller? So before, you know, a lot of runs, even on the backside, you know, you're, we say if you're on the backside of certain zone plays, you're basically on the front side because by the time the running back gets to the hole, the decision of where to go is kind of based off of you. So whether you're a front side tackle, a backside tackle, a front side guard, backside guard, the running back is kind of always working off of everybody. And so your block is equally as important. In an RPO, half the time you're on the backside and you just kind of have to just like literally stand there and get in the way of the defensive end. And, you know, the quarterback is reading a linebacker or he's reading someone else and like, that's a play you don't take off, but it's not a very high stress play where before that was, all right, go try to double team Aaron Donald. And now all of a sudden you're kind of just taking a little step inside, putting up a hand to help on Aaron Donald, getting back to the defensive end, very easy play. So the run game is a lot easier because, you know, then on the front side of, you know, these shotgun runs, it's not quite as difficult. You know, the ball typically doesn't get outside the front side tackle on a, a shotgun inside zone. And so that's a play that's not quite as stressful. It's not quite as difficult. You know, the pass game with Coach Reed, everything is rhythm-based. You know, that's what makes Pat special is what he does in the pocket, on structure, and then outside of the pocket. But it starts in the pocket, in on structure. And so that's all rhythm-based. The ball is out. I mean, there's so many times where you're like, oh, I just gave him pressure. And like the ball's been gone for two seconds. You know, so he... Holds everyone accountable. The quarterback gets it out on time. The receivers get open. The scheme forces defenses to have these cracks and these seams. And then the next level is the way he mixes up runs past the screens. You know, everything has a purpose. That first 15 that, you know, we talk about all the time. I know you guys have a little segment on, on it. Um, that's his ability to kind of force defenses to do all these different things. And yeah, maybe like a wide receiver screen isn't quite so sexy in the first quarter on the first drive, but you know what it does? It forces Von Miller to run 40 yards across the field and chase down Tyreek Hill. And yeah, he's fired when third and eight comes because he's huffing and puffing, having chased down Tyreek across the field. Like it's all these little things that people don't necessarily realize that they do have a tangible effect. It's hard to measure them. You can't measure them, but it matters. It makes the O-line's job easier. And he's a big guy at heart. He's a big guy. I mean, literally too. He understands how difficult our lives are and he tries to make it easier. It's so interesting because I think that you just explained the disconnect between what a, a really good play caller is in the moment. We talked about this with Lewis earlier today. What a really good play caller is in the moment on game day, having a feel for how one thing relates to the other, having a feel for the connective tissue between everything that you're doing and what it's like when you just take somebody who may be able to draw up a scheme on a whiteboard because they were the offensive coordinator for so-and-so, but when the time comes and they have to do it in real time and understand this is the button to press and the lever to pull at this exact moment for this exact reason, that's where the disconnect forms. And I think that to me, just from the outside looking in, that's what separates the truly special play callers from the guys just picking from a sheet. Yeah. So Kyle Shanahan, there was a point, I forget who the quarterback was, but he, we kind of trended towards using a, a play card. Uh, you know, the quarterback wears that wristband and they relay like, Oh, left hash number 66. And he has to look at his wristband and call the play. Well, Kyle hated that because he hated having to look down at the play sheet and find, all right, this is the play. Oh, it's, I got to relay now left 66. Like everything to him was just off the top of his head. Like, and so to him having to like relay, you know, 
plays off of system to his quarterback to look at a wristband that everyone else uses to make things simpler. It actually made it more difficult to him because he rattles it off the top of his head so easily and so effortlessly. It's all this like symphony that just plays out in real time. And that slowed him down and that pissed him off. And that's why he hates wristbands. <laughs> and that's what you're talking about. It's that rhythm of the game. It's the flow. It's knowing, okay, this run sets up this play action, sets up this pass, sets up this next run, sets up this thing. And it's just like one of those beautiful mind things. It's just, uh, you know, really cool to see and obviously really special to be part of. Well, it's Wednesday on the Athletic Football Show. We just solve play calling. So anyone that wants to take a listen, this is for you guys. All right. That's all the time we got. This was great. We could do this for two more hours, but unfortunately we can't. We will be back doing it again next week. So Mitch, thank you for the time, buddy. This is always fun. I'm sure people will get a ton out of that conversation. Yeah, it's always fun chatting it up and, you know, you bring back some good memories and I hope you have some more dreams for us next week. Maybe we can start a dream segment. We'll we'll see where that leads. (laughs) All right, guys, that's all we got. Thank you so much to Lewis. Thank you guys for listening. Sincerely appreciate it. Please rate and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. Please subscribe to The Athletic, theathletic.com slash football show. We'll be back tomorrow with Lindsey Jones and our weekly team visit. We're going to chat about the Broncos. Very excited about that. Until then, appreciate you guys listening. We'll talk to you soon. This was The Athletic Football Show.